Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. In this episode, we speak to the Pragma guys about their new product, tooling, and the challenges of trying to be agile in blockchain development. Hello, everyone. I'm Frederick, as usual. I'm Anna. And with us today, we have Pragma, a company that's uh, trying to build a platform that takes care of everything you need to build smart contracts on Ethereum. Welcome, guys. Hey, thanks. Thanks. Uh, maybe you can uh, give a short intro on uh, your names, your backgrounds. Uh, how did you get into this space? Sure. Uh, I'm John Palmer. I'm Marcus Mulchaney. Um, and we've been working on this for a few months now. We were both previously software engineers, most recently at Snapchat. And we had been working on some Ethereum side projects and found, um, found a lot of the developer tools that we were using kind of hard for beginners like us. Um, not necessarily beginning programmers, but people who were beginning to develop on Ethereum. We thought uh, web developers and a lot of our experiences with web would have a much easier time with you know having all these tools mimic some of the paradigms found in, in, in web tools. So we thought we could build a platform that would make it make that easier. Did you guys do anything? Um, so you mentioned you were working at Snapchat, but have you done anything else in crypto or blockchain? Yeah, so we had done a few side projects while we were um, working together at Snapchat. We, we made a, a lottery game uh, called Hash Heroes, which was pretty fun. We got to use like a lot of our web development skills to make this really fun cartoonish UI. For a lottery game, we actually made a library that generates a little hero icon based on your address. Um, so that was pretty fun. We also made a pretty pretty neat point of sales um, system using a smart contract. Yeah, we we have a friend in Brooklyn who wanted to run like a crypto coffee shop for the weekend, um, and he only wanted to take payments in Ethereum. So we made him like a little web store where his customers could um, could order items only by paying uh, with Ethereum. And the lottery story is kind of funny too because. Uh, that, that game, we like put a lot of effort into the, the UI and made like this fun little character thing. And this was all before crypto kitties and stuff. So I was just about to ask. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so most people hadn't, I, I mean, not to give ourselves too much credit. It's not like we were the first to do any of this, but it was still a time when there weren't many like usable dApps with a nice interface and connected to MetaMask. Um, so we built that and that went on product hunt and then we started getting, a bunch of messages around that uh, game like, hey, this is so cool, but I think running a lottery is illegal. Uh, <laughs> and so we like kind of like had a panic attack and like met up at night after work. We're like, all right, do we have to like shut it down? Um, and this is this is this is relevant because it kind of led to what we're working on in some ways. Um, we were like, OK, we don't want to shut down the game, but let's just make it free so that it's not an illegal lottery. And so we had planned for this. We had a like change game cost function in our contract. Um, but when we went to make it free, we had actually prevented ourselves from making the, co the cost equal to zero. And so the best we could do was set the cost to one way, which is like one tiny, tiny fraction of a penny uh, in valuation. But now at this point, we're like perpetually running an illegal lottery. Um, and, and our, our insight there was like, man, we wish we could update the code. 
because you can't really update, uh, you can't update Ethereum contracts unless you like plan for it in your architecture, which we didn't. Um, and we thought at first, maybe one of the first things we would build would be uh, letting people easily make updatable smart contracts. That turns out to be a much more difficult project uh, that takes a lot of thinking, but that was kind of the initial spark that led to the, some of the other tools as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about Pragma? Frederick just did a one-liner there, but tell us what it is for you. Sure. So right right now it exists as a web platform where you can write a smart contract, deploy it, and then share a UI for it with your users. And we also provide some event logging tools so you can kind of keep track of what's going on. So if you're a new developer, you can come on our website and there's an in-browser uh, Solidity editor. So you can write code in your web browser without downloading any any tools. And then you can click a button and deploy it to any of the Ethereum networks, Rinkeby, Kovan, or the mainnet. Um, and then once you do so, we just generate uh, a, a little web UI for your contract. And you can get a little tiny URL and send it out to all your friends and be like, hey, I made this smart contract. You can use it here. Here's the link. Um, and then the cool thing is you can go you know, monitor all the events happening on your contract too. This all happens in the web. So you don't have to download anything. So we think it's probably like, the. E I mean, I think it's definitely the easiest way if you're writing your first smart contract and like trying to get into this space, you can probably deploy a smart contract in five minutes on our, on our site. Yeah, we, I had a look at it and I also was thinking, wow, well, I'm planning on doing that soon and maybe this will be the tool that I use to get my first smart contract deployed. Yeah, please yeah, awesome. do. <laughs> please do. Let us know what yeah. you think. Um, why, so I guess, I mean, you've, you've kind of, I have a question about like why you decided to work on this project, but I kind of think you've explained your, your path to this project. Um, but maybe you can say a little bit about like what, like that was sort of what I understand that's Pragma today, but like, what is your vision for this thing? What, what will it be? Um, yeah, so right now, like I said, it's just on the web and I don't think that makes sense long-term. I think the long-term vision is this is a platform that's supporting uh, most most smart contracts that people are building. Um, I imagine it an analogy for for programmers, uh, probably the only people who pick up on it completely, but would be like a Heroku for smart contracts. So you just need to write Solidity code, and this handles everything else. Um, but yeah, I, I guess I guess that's the vision for now. It's hard to say specifically what form that will take because we've thought a lot about Heroku and like their path to making these awesome um, dev tools for people setting up other projects. And you can't really directly say like that that analogy makes sense because smart contracts have so many differences from traditional programming and the tool set also needs to be pretty different. But I think we're figuring out the tool set as we go but the vision for kind of where we end up is kind of the same, where most people think like, oh, I'm building this. Here's a platform that's going to help me do that. Heroku is actually one of my favorite like founding stories. Um, I don't know if you guys used Heroku back like when it started, because it started as um, a web IDE for Rails. Like it, it was and I signed up then and was like, oh, I, I guess it works like. I don't know why I would use a web ID for Rails. It's like they, they started with a web ID and then like went, well, to make this really useful, we have to be able to run the Rails code in some way. And then they added this feature to basically click run and, and you'd have some Rails app running that you could visit and test it out and go back to like it was part of their dev loop. And 
eventually they kind of figured out that no one actually wants this web IDE part, but everyone loves the running your app part. <laughs> and so they kind of pivoted to actually like being the platform where you push your Rails code and where you run it from. Yeah, we're actually familiar with that story and we've uh, kept that in mind a lot because as you know, right now, like I said, we have this in-browser um, place where you can write code. And I think they said like, you know, serious developers want to write code in their own text editor, yeah. which is definitely true. Um, but from a lot of developers we've talked to, Solidity and smart contract programming right now is still kind of in a space where it's still somewhat difficult to deploy contracts. And a lot of people end up using um, a tool by the foundation called Remix, uh, which is another in-browser Solidity IDE. And it's so popular right now that I think for now the tool actually ends up being useful. And it's kind of a matter of timing when to, w keeping an eye on and timing when does this stop being useful and when is there, when is it time to make like git push pragma master instead of, uh, you know, what we're doing. Yeah. I mean, you, you're talking about, uh, so the, the smart contracts are all written in solidity. Are you looking at all at building into and I don't know if you could do it from your side, but like there's obviously a lot of problems with writing Solidity and, or from what I've understood, there's a lot of kind of issues around the language, potentially like just not enough tests, not enough tooling. Is that anything that you guys care about or looking at or? Like for instance, building, building testing frameworks or building like static analysis tools. Um, I have a follow-up question to this, but you can answer that one first. We definitely, we know of a few teams that are working on static analysis tools. For now, we just wanted to kind of get it to where it is today, which is just a tool that lets you deploy smart contracts and manage them from here. Um, and then kind of like John was saying, like get it out in front of people, see how they're using it, see what they're asking for. Like the number one thing we've heard from people is we need a debugger. And we've heard that over and over and over. And I'm not saying that we're, we're working on that or plan to, um, but yeah, I guess right now we don't have any plans for a static analysis tool or something like that. But I mean, in terms of, our, is that something we're interested in? Definitely. Like, uh, there, there are definitely more qualified teams working on static analysis, but I think building it into our tool um, as like an integration makes a lot of sense. Yeah. We probably are not the people to to build that tool right now, but we could we could definitely build it into our tool. In terms of security, like another thing beyond static analysis is just like um, the ability to like get your code audited. And this is a thing we've thought a lot about from the beginning because, I mean, talking about differences between like traditional programming and smart contract programming, a big one is there's this new step that you kind of have to go through if you're going to do anything meaningful, which is getting an, a security audit. So, because security is so much more important when payments are like inherently tied to the language that you're programming in. And so for a lot of um, bigger teams, you know, like Parity or, 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 you know, companies that have money, uh, you can pay some, you can pay a professional team to do an audit. But if you are someone like us or just like a weekend hacker doing a project, you're not going to be able to shell out a few thousand dollars to someone to like audit your little game code. So there's a problem with accessibility around audits. And I think that's something that we can definitely make easier. Um, I think right now you kind of have to like shill your audit on like Reddit to get someone to look at your code. So people will like go to all the subreddits and say, here's a link to like a gist, a GitHub gist with my code. Someone please audit it. And maybe like if you work hard enough, one or two people will leave a comment, but you like don't know who they are. 
you don't know if the comment's helpful because you don't know anything about Solidity either. Um, and I think that... And the, the incentives are all wrong because they're not actually incentivized to look at it from you know, uh, a really critical point of view. And it's like, we were actually, we have a podcast episode that will probably go out before this one where we talk specifically about security and audits. And um, uh, Liz in that episode was talking about to have a really good audit, you need people looking from multiple perspectives. Um, you can't just have one person go in and say, okay, I'm gonna like look at this from a happy path. You, you need like a lot of different perspectives. And I totally agree. Like there, there's no sustainable solution right now to do that if you don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars in your bank account. Yeah, but I think that's something where we've got some ideas on our platform that can can maybe make that a little bit easier. So not necessarily from the static analysis side, not like automated uh, analyze your code, but hey, if you can already deploy your code on Pragma, if you do, guess what? Uh, someone's going to audit your code or many people will have an incentive to do so. So that's that's probably in the pipeline soon. That would be really cool, yeah. So I mean, uh, what you were saying before, I think is a great idea of um, what I see in this space is there are so many different teams working on so many different things, uh, but they're all kind of isolated. They're all doing their thing and, and trying to push their thing out there. There's nothing that really tries to tie everything together and unified in one experience. Uh, so having like a unified developer experience using everyone else's tools is hugely, hugely valuable. Yeah. And I think even, even though we're so early, there's, I guess there's, there's still a lot to see. And I think the biggest thing for us right now is get, get in front of more people, but from the people that have been using it so far, there's been obviously suggestions for improvements, but there's been a lot of positive feedback. So I think there's definitely a subset of people that, that are really interested so far. So something that's being talked about a lot in the Ethereum community right now is to switch from EVM to Wasm. And at that point, uh, we'll probably start seeing uh, more languages flourish in sort of a smart contract setting. Um, I know I would love to be able to write Rust and deploy that as a smart contract rather than Solidity. Um, and uh, like there's JavaScript and whatever else that compiles to Wasm that will eventually be runnable. Is that something that you've started looking at or thinking about, like making your platform agnostic? Or are you like focused in on a, on Solidity as a language? It's something that's been on the radar insofar as like um, making sure we're not caught off guard, but not in terms of development so far. I guess like personally, I've been keeping up with uh, stuff like Viper and then other platforms like Definity, Polkadot, uh, Tezos, and just being aware that like, oh, maybe some of these other blockchains will even be things that people want to make stuff on soon. Um, but I guess the different languages on, on Wasm, even for Ethereum, is, is another thing. Yeah, we, we thought just the, the most immediate thing we could do now is make this all work for Solidity and then really see how people use it and what they like. And then decide if we want to integrate more tools into that or move the platform on top of other blockchains. Cool. So the way I actually met you guys originally was you were doing an interview uh, with a bunch of developers um, talking about what they want to see in this space and had a good chat with you guys. How many participants did you actually have in that interview? Yeah, so, so that's actually still ongoing. Um, but so far, I think we're like between 30 and 40 interviews yeah. done. Um, cool. So there's definitely going to be 
I guess more information once once this whole thing's done because we'll publish a full report and there's a there's a few other groups working on that too. Um, but so far we've had you know thirty to forty interviews with devs from some some really prominent teams in the space. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, what like um, I know we talked about some stuff actually uh, talking about debugging earlier. My, I, I, I think I said this during the interview, or I thought it afterwards. I'm not sure, <laughs> but my main feature request of anything is um, a time traveling debugger. So this is what Elm has, where you have like a, you make a do something, and you can scroll back and forth, and you have a little time slider that can replay and um, like go back and forth in time on transactions. Right, and, um, and Redux was heavily inspired by Elm, and it has the same time traveling debugger, and people are just so used to that now. It makes a lot of yeah. sense to be able to develop that way. Yeah. Uh, so, what what were your main takeaways from these interviews so far? Like, what's the main requested features? You were talking a little bit about it before. That's number one. Like most popularly, is everyone's like, "Give us a debugger." Everybody wants a debugger, um, which turns out it's pretty hard to make. Uh, <laughs> and then, I don't know what else. I guess a lot of the stuff like. A lot of things we've heard have come down to uh, reliability in some ends. Like my truffle tests are inconsistent. When I if I run them ten times, like one single test will fail each time, but it's a different test. Or um, you know stuff like Web three having bugs, Web three JS having bugs, and um, we've like even submitted like some PRs to fix some stuff in Web three. Uh, let's see, and I guess. I mean, all of this will, so the interview series is still ongoing. So I don't kind of want to like, you know, say things before, before it's over, but, um, cause there will be like a, a pretty fully fleshed out report on all of the findings and it's kind of only halfway through. And I think a lot of stuff will change in the space even before it's done. But, um, the biggest thing, one, one question we've asked everyone is what's, what was the hardest part about learning to program for Ethereum? And a lot of the time, it just comes down to the paradigm, like the new programming paradigm and, and how how computations are run on the blockchain. Um, and it's been kind of interesting to hear everybody's stories about kind of figuring that out. Um, most programmers, I guess, are used to like, you click a button, your single machine runs your code and spits out the result immediately. And this even gets into some design discussions because this super long pending state for transactions, I mean, I guess there's a million ways you could take the conversation on this from scalability to usability. But um, this long pending state kind of trips people up uh, when they when they first start programming on Ethereum, and I think a big part of that is actually from design. Um, so, like to be more specific, like I guess in usual web interfaces, you might like do an action and get a loading spinner that lasts one to two seconds, and then you're done. But in Ethereum, you have this pending state, which could be like ten minutes, and people just take um, from the design side people just take a, a loading spinner and they just fill the full 10 minute pending state with the loading spinner. But it's actually not like it's, you're not loading. And the expectation around those spinners is that they're only there for a few seconds. So when they last for minutes, people think like this isn't working properly. And so I guess like to work backwards, like, so people say their confusion when they got into Ethereum was like this, this paradigm when they use these applications. And I think the paradigm would be easier to understand if the design match the paradigm that was happening. So I think one example of that is like moving from non-blocking loading designs to kind of like 
designs in the background. Instead of a, a spinner taking up your screen that's spinning saying loading, 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 you maybe put an indicator in the bottom corner that just says your transaction is pending and let the user be unblocked and go go about their day, keep using your app until it's done. And then you can like kind of remind them again when it finishes. A, a big thing we're thinking about as a web product is like how to make design match up with the programming paradigm instead of just taking old elements from web design and just like jamming them into blockchain. Yeah, that's definitely something I've seen as well, um, both in terms of my own work, but also in uh, projects that I've used is, um, yeah, you have to treat this UX differently. Um, And I think I have a theory, actually, that um, making the programming language look like other programming languages, so Solidity is kind of made to look a little bit like JavaScript, and you go into it expecting that it'll work that way. And you kind of try to stick to the way you normally program. And then you find out, oh, wait, it doesn't actually work that way. I have to think completely differently. Uh, It comes like as a second shock after they've had to learn this new language. Whereas if you made something completely radically different, it would be like from day one, you have the shock, but at least you then accept the new paradigm right away. What do you think about that? Like, I, I... We've, we've talked a lot about it, whether that's like a smart decision or a bad decision. Right. I, I, I think for like Solidity looking like JavaScript, it, it captures so many of these web developers that are interested and they see it and it's like it immediately looks familiar. But then exactly like you said, like it, it's just a totally different thought paradigm. So it kind of puts you on a different level playing field that you, you, than you think you really are. I think it's a good decision actually um, to make Solidity look like JavaScript just because of I guess popularity. I mean, like, I don't, like, I don't know. I it, it's like the the developer adoption outweighs the the cons of having them go go through that extra step after they realize it's actually different. Yeah, like I know that I know that there are cons there, and like when there are serious bugs, it's it, there there are large cons. But I guess there's a little bit of like individual bias on my part because if Solidity didn't look like JavaScript, I don't know if like we would have made the game and we probably wouldn't be working on it now because we just maybe not have even gotten interested. So, and, and at least in this space, um, I think like the whole Ethereum ecosystem, just, this isn't a novel idea. Everyone knows this, I think, but like the more, the more useful apps are there, the more valuable the whole, the whole thing becomes. And, and, Right now, mostly like games and like casino stuff, uh, but there's lots of them and that's pretty cool. I'm actually really excited by like when I see games come out on new platforms like this, like seeing the collectible thing come out, seeing all the new emerging games. Like, I, I think that stuff is really, really cool. Yeah, I think it's I think it's pretty awesome. But at the same time, I see so many of these apps that want to launch and kind of can't because the scaling bits aren't there yet. So I'm still like, yeah, I'm at a stage where I'm like excited about the stuff that's there and that has happened, but I'm still like mostly just yearning for when like the big players can enter the market and start building their apps and or start shipping their apps. A lot of people have actually built stuff and just can't ship it because it's not scalable yet. I know, I know there's been a few different Pokemon things so far, but recently I saw one that was pretty cool because they pretty much taken the Game Boy Advance game and then just only put on the blockchain your key decisions. So it was like an actual fun game. You play Pokemon for real. But uh, it came time to just like choose my starting Pokemon. I chose it. 
And then it was like, okay, confirm your choice. MetaMask comes up. It's a free transaction, but the gas was like $8. And I was like, I can't afford this Pokemon. Like, wow. this game is going to cost me thousands of dollars to complete. <laughs> Quickly, the most expensive video game you've ever played. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it'll be cool once that's, that's uh, more accessible. Why wouldn't people, I mean, just on that point, why wouldn't people do that on test nets? Why are they doing it on mainnet? That's a great know. question. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Even on, you know, uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you guys know more about this than us, right? So we've been um, thinking a lot about um, just like test nets and main nets and then like running, doing local development and then doing putting like using the JS EVM in the browser for all the different things people do when they're using their smart contract. It'd be really nice if there was a test net that could just like be super, super fast. Even on Rinkaby, like right now, transactions take like 20, 30 seconds sometimes. So speed is always a trade-off between number of authorities or the, the amount of decentralization and um, uh, how many transactions or how much throughput you want. And Coban, I don't know how many authorities it has. It's on the order of 20. Um, so accounting for network delays and time clock syncs and whatever, uh, you still need um, block times on the order of seconds. But if you, for instance, started your own testnet with, let's say, three authorities, it would be very centralized and no one should, uh, you know, trust it with their uh, retirement funds, but it would be fast. Like you could probably have uh, a second or sub-second block time. And if you run like powerful enough machines, you can have a huge gas limit on them as well. And so it would be essentially like nothing. And um, Parity is working right now on a bridge between Coban and mainnet. So eventually like there's there's stuff that you could do as well to have like interoperability between your testnet and mainnet and you know there there's stuff you could do. That's interesting. Yeah. Is th is that part of uh Polkadot development or is that separate research? That's separate. It's um on a repo called Parity Bridge, I think. But uh yeah, we can link it in the show notes, but yeah, it's it's public. There was actually a talk just yesterday by the developer of it um, on a meetup or a conference. I don't know what it was called Scaling Now and um, talking about yeah, the bridge and how you can kind of use test nets as your uh, like fast version of Ethereum where you can run stuff and try stuff out. And then once you want to like build a Pokemon service that uh, holds value forever, you deploy it on Ethereum. Uh, so I, not to flip, not to like flip the interview around, but I actually, I have another question for, for you. Um, so I read a, a blogger named Venkatesh Rao. I don't know if you've read any of his stuff before. Um, but he, he did this essay series called Breaking Smart for Andreessen Horowitz a while ago. And it was just like an essay series on software development and the history of software. And one of the posts there is called Purists versus Pragmatists. And he talks about how the winners in the world of software over history have been pragmatists and not purists. And the difference is um, purists build a super long-term plan and then they spend years building a product and then they finally release it. Um, so it's a very long feedback loop. And then like if it, people don't like it, too bad, like you failed. Uh, pragmatists have a much faster feedback loop and they always run in, uh, they always pursue like the degree of maximal interestingness is the phrase. And so it's like very, very short feedback loop. And um, it doesn't necessarily mean that like you don't have a, 
a solid idea. Like you need some some core principles, but you're willing to make like small and fast pivots to the degree that's most interesting. And the reason I'm thinking about this a lot is because when I read that uh, two years ago, uh, I was like, yeah, this is definitely true. I believe this. I'm always going to be like the pragmatist, obviously, people who don't don't get it. But then you come into crypto and the whole model like doesn't really work anymore because anyone building like a new protocol or something like really cutting edge has a team of super smart people and it's going to take at least a year to build. And you can't really like ship a new blockchain fast. Like if it doesn't work and you lose people's money or lose people's trust, you pretty much killed yourself early. So we've been thinking a lot about that. And I'm curious what you guys think, because you're kind of working on, you know, maybe like we're, we're right now at the application lo- layer and building something on the web. So we can still kind of be like on the, on the pragmatist side, I think, uh, to a degree. But for, for teams like you who are building kind of these, these deeper, uh, these deeper yeah, t- protocol level stuff. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I wonder how like you think about that model and if there's any like lessons you've learned about like, how can we like still like ship fast or like keep a feedback loop that's, that's, that's short while not sacrificing the, the safety of our product? I think I think you just brought up something that is totally also on our minds. And we've had a lot of conversations around this topic over the last few months um, looking at, uh, I mean, I think we all know what's gone down it with some parody software in the last six months. And so definitely like it's come up for us. And like I, I personally am coming from startup land. I have my own startup. I've done that whole sprint agile fast and that's what I what I'm used to. And actually entering into the blockchain space has been it's forced me to um, rethink a lot of those things. And it's it's annoying because like in a way you want to move quickly when you have a lot of energy in a space. You want to just like start building stuff and shipping stuff and getting stuff out. And a lot of people are really young too, so they really want to do that. Um, and then all of a sudden you kind of have to add these really annoying structures on that. But you do have to add them because, like you said, you're dealing with far more um, like security critical and money critical things. <laughs> Thank you, Frederick. Even when you mention audits and this idea of uh, needing to have those steps, checklists, things that actually uh, exist in a lot of, you know, like they exist at NASA and they exist in medical industries and they exist in some like high level banking industries. You have a lot of checklists, you have a lot of oversight. Those are the things that make those big industry players slow, which is annoying, but it's also the things that make them safe. And a lot of those checklist things have been learned over the over years. It's it's not that they decided to be boring. It's like that was learned because of mishaps and mistakes and money lost and lives lost. And that's this, it's, I think that's what make, makes blockchain so interesting right now is that you have to, you like, you have all of the push of regular software development and yet you, you actually are dealing very, like in a very, very short time, the industry has had to, the players in the industry have had to deal with extremely um, like important issues with gravitas. To some degree, you have to deal with both levels in this space, yeah. There's two directions you can learn there. One is um, we moved too fast and something broke. And so now we need to learn about security. The other that I'm really curious to see with a lot of the projects, because most haven't shipped something yet, is, oh, we spent too long on this thing that everyone told us was genius. And now we release this protocol 
And it turns out people don't actually use something like this. Like, um, that will definitely happen. (laughs) The market told you that they valued you at $200 million, but it turns out, uh, those people just wanted to make a profit on an investment. And those people, even though they think they might even think it's a really cool idea, but then when you ask them to use it, it's not the same. And that's actually something that like all products deal with, including ourselves is you tell someone, Hey, we're making this product. And they say, that's so cool. Like that's amazing. And then they don't use it. So it's like, well, do you really think it's amazing? Cause if you did, you would be using the product. And as a, as an agile company, you get to figure that out really fast because you get, tried to give them the product and they didn't use it. But as a crypto company, now you have millions of dollars from an ICO if you did one, but you don't get to even teach yourself that lesson. So kind of you're like willingly blind to the fact maybe that there's like not a true market around a marketplace that you're building. Testnets really played the role of this here, like both on the protocol level and on the application level. So on the application level, you build something, you deploy it on the testnet. If it's actually valuable, if it's actually cool enough, people will use it on the testnet. Like just to try it out, just to do, like even if it's not the best experience or even if it's like you're playing Pokemon, but they, you know they're going to go away. If you really love playing that game, you'll still play it, but on a testnet. And so there, there is that like you can have that feedback loop. Um, it's definitely not something that all developers are incorporating. So, which is why I said, I think actually there will be a lot of these companies that are working on something for years to figure out that this is not actually something people want to use. But on the protocol level, it's sort of the same thing. Like Bitcoin is uh, well known to be the absolute slowest moving player. They will not accept any form of change to the protocol whatsoever. Maybe someday in the next 10 years, we might have Schnorr signatures that massively improves everything (laughs) and just should be a no-brainer but uh, like it moves slow for a purpose like like we were saying that they there's a lot of money at stake uh, a lot of people to convince etc i think it it may also be i mean maybe this is also a shift Uh, you know like early software development wasn't lean startup and agile it was actually like long-term projects and you look at bell labs and you look at like all of those early tech companies when they were doing work or I mean, or look at the military or something, there was like really long timelines and there was this like ultra testing culture and they had to make sure that everything was okay. And maybe what we're seeing is sort of like, it's sh- it shifted towards this fast and lean because the tools were there and we kind of need to shift back for a little while. And it's, I don't know, I, I, I guess, what I, what I hope is that the excitement can stay at a certain level. <laughs> People still want to do it um, without that speed. I mean, so Ethereum, when it started, was like much of this idea of like, okay, we're not going to be able to do this on Bitcoin. Let's start a new thing. Let's do this and um, like be able to iterate again. And then over time, Ethereum has slowed down as well because there's now a lot of value held in it. And so the test nets are the place now where we don't actually um, just test protocol changes, but like we, we test out a bunch of different ideas. So basically right now, if you have an idea, okay, I, I think this would be valuable in the protocol level. Um, you can't like put out an EIP and say, I think maybe this works, um, but you can implement it on a test net, see if it works on a test net. And then you have some proof that it will be used or that it's valuable in some way. 
and then you can sort of move it back up the line and um, actually implement it on Ethereum or something else. The, the iteration is absolutely essential to actually building something that people want. It reminds me now uh, to talk about like, I, well, one, like the blockchain space and like blockchain, like time compression in terms of how quickly things move forward. But then also um, thinking about like application level development versus protocol level development and whether or not like the speed of change maybe even like incentivizes people to wait to build application level stuff until they figure out like a winner or the best chain. So like Bitcoin came out or the white paper was like 2009. So then you had like wait until 2015. So like uh, six years later you have Ethereum and now like only two years later, you've got all of these like blockchain 3.0. So, um, you know, Tezos, Dfinity, whatever, um, you could name a bunch of them. I wonder for application developers or like smart contract developers, how like how much people read into whether or not they should build something because there might be like a blockchain that replaces it. Like, oh, if Ethereum, like if I really believe Ethereum is a foundation, I'm fine to like put all this work into stuff that I'm going to build on top of it. But now if I'm scared, like, oh, is another thing going to come along in two years and then one year and then six months? Do I just like n wait, ride this thing out and like not even build any applications until the like yeah. blockchain 11.0 is like the perfect that you're just like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's just like Google servers or something. I, I, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I kind of wonder about that right now in terms of the people building applications on top of a protocol, like you have to have a lot of faith in that protocol. I think that's definitely a thing that developers are waiting to for the next cool thing or um, just like waiting for the space to mature. And I think that's a legit thing to do. I mean, I, I want developers in this space as much as um, the next guy, but um, it, it is not ready for mass adoption. And like, there's still a lot of problems that we need to solve before um, like everyone can build their app on it. So like, I think there's a good balance that there are developers, there are people passionate enough to do stuff on this platform. I think, um, kind of web three interoperability stuff will help because then you have some security in saying, okay, I'm going to build this on Ethereum. And if there's a next big thing, I can integrate with it. Like we're at a good mix. It's like the early internet. Like you wouldn't want everyone to build their app on the internet in 99 or they wanted to, and they funded a lot of people to do that, but it didn't actually work out. Um, and so now like the internet is that space where everyone can build anything. And, uh, we're now in like this space where, you know, some people should build something to make it like prove provable that it's, that it has value. Uh, but, um, everyone shouldn't build anything because it, it's just not going to work right now. And I think a lot too about like, um, I still have a lot of research to do on, on like the blockchain three point every, well, every, there's a multiple blockchain 3.0, I guess, competitors or whatever. But I start to think a lot too, in terms of like, well, the difference between Ethereum and Bitcoin mainly would be you add a smart contracting language and now you can put like logic onto the blockchain, which is a, a serious change, um, versus just like a ledger of payments. Then some of the, some of the blockchain 3.0 stuff, seems to just be like a, a scalability solution. And there doesn't seem to be kind of like that zero to one innovation. Like here's this whole set of things you can do now that you could never do before. Um, so I wonder too, like if blockchain 3.0 is like maybe just a headline grabbing. To some extent, I think it is. But the, 
the innovation really to me is um, being able, for instance, to pay for computation on the Ethereum network using Bitcoin. So let's say I want to run this program on Ethereum, I'm going to pay with it in Bitcoin. That's just not possible. Or let's let's say like I, I want to, uh, you know, route this payment through Zcash so, so that it's 100% private. That's also like you, you'd have to go to, through some exchange and at the moment a centralized ex- exchange because there's not even a decentralized exchange between tokens. And so, uh, yeah, th- there is um, some fundamental innovation there. Um, but a lot of them are also just looking at like scaling or sharding or things like that. I mean, that that's definitely something that for me is like, is very cool. Yeah. Thinking about like the Polkadot stuff, I know in like one of the videos, it's like, whoa, what if this Ethereum smart contract could send Zcash to another Ethereum smart contract? That's pretty cool, uh, but, but probably pretty far away. I like what you say though, that idea of like going from zero to one and how do you do that next step? And what will it be? I don't know if you listened to our, we did a little wrap up of 2017 looking forward to 2018. And I know that um, one of the, the predictions that I that I have is that something out of left field is gonna come up. And this year we're gonna start to see like a little, like a little sparkle and we might not notice it exactly. We'll, we'll notice it, but we won't necessarily jump on it. Um, and that's that's what I'm thinking. So I, I hear you, I, I wonder if it's. That's a good segue, maybe we can like, come back to uh, and wrap up on like application level stuff. So we're trying, you know, we have this thing where people can actually all kinds of developers, not even blockchain developers can come on our site right now and start building smart contracts for new things. I wonder what the next, you know, what the next crypto kitties is, or, or I mean, there's still so much experimentation to be done there. We haven't actually mentioned where you can find your stuff. So where do I find Pragma on the internet and where can I find you guys? Are you going to be at any hackathons or meetups or anything like that? Yeah. So our site is www.withpragma.com. Um, so you can find us there. That's our product. Uh, it's live. You can sign up and use it. And then uh, the next thing we'll be at is ETH Denver. Yeah. So we'll be there uh, with a bunch of other teams uh, sharing a, an Airbnb house. Should be fun. Um, we'll have Pragma t-shirts, so look out for us. Yeah, come uh, find us. We'll give you one. <laughs> yeah. Got to get the swag. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And hopefully we'll build a cool project uh, using our platform at ETH Denver. And then we're on Twitter, too. Yeah. John yeah. underscore C underscore Palmer is my Twitter handle. Uh, I'm Marcus Mulch. And on our website, we have a support email and a Discord. Like, hop in there and give us any feedback. We respond pretty instantly. Yeah. Uh, I have a last question. Um, what do you see coming up? in 2018, you've done all these interviews with all of these devs. What do you want to see in the next year in the Ethereum community or the blockchain community in general? Talking to people so far, a lot of stuff has been in this. I'll talk about what people already built. And I think people say like leading technology is always gaming, gambling, and porn. (laughs) So we've seen a lot of stuff in those three applications with crypto. So I would like to see stuff that's outside of those three uh, things. (laughs) Not that those are bad. Like all that stuff is really cool. One thing I'm particularly interested in is tokens. And I don't mean like more ICOs. I think the big thing right now is all these people doing um, these macro protocol tokens where it's like, hey, there's this whole new protocol. We're issuing 100 million of this new token. Everyone do the ICO. I'm interested in seeing if anything happens with like hyper local tokenization of like, um, you know, this town issued 10,000 of a token and you can just like use it to ride the bus or like, uh, this group of friends has a token and they only have a hundred and they're just like swapping them for lunches. 
I think there's cool stuff there that I started thinking about when I first heard about Bitcoin is, is like, is there going to be one universal currency or are there going to be thousands of these little currencies? And I would like to see some more of these like tiny scope tokens that people use in like really tight networks. Almost like this, this almost reminds me of Snapchat. Like Snapchat said, Facebook had this idea that like there's this huge network and the bigger it is, the more valuable it is. But Snapchat is more focused around tiny groups of friends. And we think that's more valuable. I would even say like, Bitcoin or Ethereum is, you know, or whatever. A lot of these protocol tokens are centered around building up a big network of people. And it's always more, you have a bigger network effect the more people that are there. But I don't know if that's true. I'd like to see kind of like these clustered networks where yeah. me and my friends have like, you know, John's friend token or something. Totally. That's my answer. Uh, I think one of the criticisms now of cryptocurrencies is that it's supposed to be banking the unbanked. And like a lot of people have said that we haven't really seen that. So I think something that, like brings cryptocurrencies to the entire world and like gives mass adoption of cryptocurrencies. Like once that happens, we'll start to see how people really use smart contracts and like the big applications that come out of Ethereum. Totally. Like in a way, um, a lot of the, a lot of the gains in utility of cryptocurrencies in the the developed world, like in in a country like the United States also come with trade-offs. So you get decentralization, but you lose um, you lose speed of transactions right now with Ethereum. In the developing world, you can almost like leapfrog that whole state in the middle. Like if you're a country that hasn't really had the, a large part of your population in a banking system before, not with cryptocurrency, not only do you get all the benefits of a decentralized network, but you're also like for the first time moving money from like offline to online. And so there's actually like way more benefits of a, of a cryptocurrency system in those countries. Totally. And so I would love to see the same thing that Marcus said. The, the challenge there is getting some infrastructure in place, even stuff like data and, and, and internet. But if that can be there, I think you'll see way more interesting like economic experiments happen when like towns in, in, these, in these countries start using crypto to, to trade. And that'd be cool. Yeah. It's an exciting future. Thank you very much again for uh, coming on the podcast and talking to us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks for coming on. And thanks for listening. 